So Clifton Matter joined us in the Kadich Gallery a few weeks back, and we had the opportunity to talk with him about his books throughout his career, but primarily in his project known as the Studio of Exhaustion. Cliff is a, a teacher and a fine artist, and the conversation was wide-ranging and deep, and I think we had a, all had a lot of fun. So um, I hope you enjoy this Q&A with Clifton Metter. Welcome, Cliff Metter, to the Cash Gallery for the Q&A uh, related to your exhibition, Studio of Exhaustion. Thank you for coming, and uh, we appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to us about your work. And give a round of applause. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Very glad to be here. Uh, would you mind just giving us a little bit of your background, uh, how, you, how you arrived to where you're at today as a bookmaker? How far back do you want me to go? All the way. All the you way. You were born in... <laughs> so when I was in art school, I, was, I, was, I studied photography in art school, and I was making groups of photographs that had sort of narrative connections. All my teachers were of the generation of photographers who did abstract photography, so like Harry Callahan, Aaron Siskin, all those people were teaching where I was studying. And uh, all of the people of my generation hated abstract photography. Hmm. We thought the nature of photography had some tenuous relationship with the world, and that a photograph ought to like have that, somehow express that idea. So I was making groups of photographs that were representational and narrative in nature. And one teacher finally said to me, you know, there's a there's a kind of an existing technology for this, and it's called a book. <laughs> and so I started making books as an undergraduate, and I was wasn't really making artist books; they were more like artist brochures. But they were they were small book like objects, and uh, because I had a, because I'd grown up in Alabama, and I had this funny relationship with the idea of the art world, which I knew entirely through books. I thought that that was where the art world ought to exist. So I wanted to make books in that discourse rather than in some gallery scene. Interesting. And we took, we would go uh, to galleries a lot in art school. And I saw the gallery, this is not how I feel now, but at that time I saw the gallery as this elitist space that kept people out of it. And I wanted to make work that was available to anybody. And I had some crazy idea about making democratic art. So I wanted to make work that existed in large multiples, so I studied printing. So even one night at art school, there was an offset proof press in the printmaking department. A group of us went and took it apart and moved it into the photography building one night. And so we sort of taught ourselves how to print offset. Was that uh, kidnapping? It was press napping. So uh, I got really interested in offset printing, and since I'd grown up in Alabama, I was struggling with what that meant and I heard about this place called Nexus Press in Atlanta, Georgia and they were printing artist books as part of a, a program in a, an art center, a contemporary art center in Atlanta. So I basically drove myself down there and pounded on the door and said I'm really interested in what you're doing um, and they hired me. There was a program under uh, President Carter called the Comprehensive Education Training Act and they hired artists to work at kind of minimum wage jobs. So I got a CETA job, mm. which lasted until Ronald Reagan was elected, mm. uh, where I learned how to run a press and make artist books at Nexus Press. Mm. And then I worked at a variety of printing places after that. And I moved to Rhinebeck, New York, and worked in a literary small press publisher. I went back to Nexus, and I became the director and then there was some political weirdness in Atlanta, and we lost our building. So the building that Nexus Contemporary Art Center was in was seized by the city, taken back by the city, uh, and we lost our house. So I decided to go to graduate school at that time. So I went to graduate school. Where'd you go to graduate school? Uh, Purchase College, which oh, okay. is part of SUNY. Okay. They had an MFA in book and paper, book arts, which was a very short-lived program, and only seven people ever got that degree. So we refer to each other by our number, so I'm, I'm two, <laughs> my buddy Leonard's one, well, Sally's four. I was going to ask you about that, because I, I didn't imagine RISD had a book arts program, right? No, I only went through undergrad. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, when you were getting interested in the book, they didn't really have a book program. Not that's at all. more of a West Coast thing at the time, right? I mean, yeah. 
You think about well, like, there was alternative publishing at the time, uh, and that's kind of so. That's the weird yeah. thing about me is I don't fit into the book arts, the classical book arts right. at all. I come to it out of this kind of experimental publishing world. Yes. So Which just is fine, different. yeah, fine craft that was never part of my what I was interested in. Fine printing was something I actually found when I was younger. I found it kind of anathema, uh, and I was interested in this democratic way of distributing work to a large audience, which was crazy. And I was impressed by that because I have these two books and they're very affordable. That was yeah. always my dream. And I responded to that right away. I can afford this. And your two books are my first artist books other than oh. the ones I've made. Oh, really? So there are lots of problems with my ideas about the art world, <laughs> which you can easily imagine. But it was, you know, I was young and sort of crazy. Well, so wait, so so there might be someone someone gets their hands on an offset litho and starts a boutique publishing house. That's kind of the idea at that point. Like an art arts interested person could kind of make small run editions of artist yeah. experimental books. So Lucy Lepard, who was one of the founders of Printed Matter in New York City, yeah. was like my guru. Okay, everything she wrote about the democratic multiple, all that stuff, I completely bought into that vision of what art ought to do. Right. Uh, her dream she wrote about was that there would be uh, artist books in the checkout line in the grocery store. Oh. And so that was the kind of world I wanted to see happen. Yeah, it was really crazy. <laughs> Didn't really get there, did it? Nope. And there's a there are economic model problems with it, <laughs> which you can easily imagine. So anyway. So I did that, and then I went to graduate school in this strange uh, program, which was split between graphic design and printmaking. And I had some great teachers. I had fabulous teachers. So Antonio Frasconi, the well-known printmaker, was one of my teachers. Margot Lovejoy, another well-known printmaker. Uh, Warren Lehrer, who was probably my most influential teacher. And then my buddy Phil, Phil Zimmerman, who was kind of my generation, was also working there as a tech. So I spent three years in graduate school there, and that was where my work took a sort of serious turn to become kind of more ambitious. And the first project I did that I really love is Long Slow March. And I started that while I was in graduate school. It's back there. Oh, okay. And now I that looks that looks to the naked eye, it just looks like a book that you buy at a bookstore. That was that was exactly what I wanted to do. Got it. I wanted to make books that looked like they could just go into a bookstore and have a slight Trojan horse aspect to them. Interesting. So that they used experimental graphic means, uh, they subverted the nature of the book a little bit, uh, they didn't fit into commercial book publishing rules, but they looked like it. Yes. So that was kind of where I wanted my work to sit, and it still sort of hovers around that edge. Uh, I, I'm interested in the idea of machine-made art, so work that doesn't really represent the hand so much as like what a machine does. So a lot of, you look at this stuff, you can see even the bindings I do, I try to make them as simple as possible or as machine-made as possible. It's not that I hate craft, I actually love craft. It's that that's where my own imagination has taken me. It's like I want to work with machines that do this so that I can make a lot of something so that it's cheaper for anybody to buy. Is there any Bauhaus in there? There's lots of Bauhaus in there. Is there? Good call. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was wondering. Yeah, because you, yeah, kinda, a, you don't hijack the manufacturing process, but you acknowledge it, the strengths of it, and the, the de democratic ideal of it. Yeah, which is really bunk. I recognize now, but <laughs> it was what it was. It's like a kind of background. So the background yeah. question. Yeah, I went to graduate school with no intention of ever teaching. Uh -huh. I wanted three years to work in the studio, and they had a great studio. Is where I was. And they had a subsidized daycare. I had a three-year-old at that time. We had a three-year-old. So they had subsidized daycare. They paid me to go to graduate school, and they had great studios. So I was in heaven for about three years. It was awesome. Uh, and then I had to figure out something to do with myself. Right. So I discovered part of my uh, stipend thing was I had to teach. Okay. I discovered I liked teaching. You taught all three years? I did. I taught okay. all three years. My first week in graduate school, they threw me into a class. I feel so sorry for those students. <laughs> How old were you? Oh, I was old. I'd okay. already been working. I was in you'd my been 30s. Out, you'd been out doing this stuff. So yeah, you came so back in your 30s. I was in my 30s. You still then. didn't feel prepared. To... I'd never really taught a college class what before. What was it? It was uh, offset production for designers. Oh my gosh, wow. 
well, I, I could do the offset part. I understood the technical part was easy for me. And they had a beautiful offset shop. Uh, but, you know, the first crit was really, really painful. <laughs> I remember that painful embarrassment. No that. syllabus that you just had to adopt. It was just... Uh... They gave me a rough outline. If any of those people are out there, <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> uh, so I started teaching... And I taught as an adjunct in the greater New York City metropolitan area for four years. And there was a point where I was driving a triangle of about 60 miles between three different institutions to teach as an adjunct. So teaching at the Center for Book Arts in New York, College in New Rochelle, and at Purchase College still. Wow. So, um, and then we were getting ready to have our second kid. And I said to my partner, Mary Neal, I said, listen, there's only one day of the week you can have this child and it won't screw up my teaching schedule. <laughs> and she did. She did? Wow. That was on Thursday. Very uh, Throughout that time, were you applying and just not getting, or? I was applying like crazy, yeah. yeah. And then I landed a visiting assistant professor gig, and then they hired me on at uh, SUNY New Paltz. Oh, wow. So I taught there for 13 years. Wow. So that's my background. We all get there one way or another. You want to you want to go back to that bunk idea with Bauhaus? Well, so the the Bauhaus is not bunk. My the problem I had the mistake I made was thinking about the economics of the art world uh-huh. and how artists can earn a living uh, in the art world. Yeah, and making a lot of something that's cheap doesn't produce an income. It doesn't really. No, definitely doesn't. I mean, Matthew Hoffman maybe. It's rare. If you get on Oprah, if you get on Oprah, if you get on Oprah, maybe. Does he make a living making cheap art? He makes a good living. He does. He makes a solid living. He provides for his family and has a nice house in uh, Oak Oak Park or something. Yeah, he's way more positive than I could ever be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I would argue that a difference between the two is that he uh, developed, I mean, he was anonymous for 10 years. Yes. He was doing a bunch of work that was free street work, small, cheap work, and then also getting paid a ton of money to anonymously build things for people. He was working, he had a job. He had, he had a full-time job. He had a day job. And then when he stopped being anonymous, that became more exciting for the people because then they had a purpose. And uh, yeah. so now what I would say is he is able to exist because he has built that background where he gets paid twenty, thirty thousand dollars to put up these big things, and then is able to sell these five dollars and fifty dollar things to everybody else. But out of his house, I mean, he has a garage shop, garage inventory. Oh, he has a, he has a, he has a building now. Does he have he a building outside? Employees. He moved he has, into the building. He has, yeah, I think like six to eight employees. He's when he had the show here, building. he was doing it out of his garage with sta- a small staff, yeah. but out of his garage, it was tight. Yeah. Awesome. But he must be the exception that proves the rule, right? I mean, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just the difference. You were coming into it with this one particular intention. He he played the game of recognizing free versus expensive right from the beginning. So that's that's something I now make expensive things too. So that's one of the things they do. So Ed Ed Paschke said you an artist should have a pyramid of projects, mm-hmm. right? A couple of expensive things and then lots of cheap things, and so I maybe that's what he does that pretty well. Yeah, and I've adopted that model now. Like you know, some of that one thing in the middle is expensive by my reckoning. But your online store, you couldn't support yourself on your online store. I couldn't support anything. <laughs> you can't support your online store with your online store. I it's it's self-supporting. It pays for all the materials uh, that I use. Do you have an online store or does Vamp & Tramp sell it? So Vamp & Tramp reps my work. I have a dealer in Europe too who reps my work. And then I have an online cargo site that I, I built. Uh, I was I was in the New York Art Book Fair last spring and they did the, an online version. And it was all built, it was all cargo sites. You know, these kind of, these kind of CMS. And so I decided to learn cargo, learn how to build one just to, to pay that. And I did it. And I did surprising. I've tabled in person at the New York Art Book Fair, 
the virtual tabling so much better. Yeah. Sales so much better. Yeah. Yeah, much better. Did we buy through Vamp and Trip? Yeah. We bought through Vamp and Trip. That's where I saw it. That's right. So I have I have a website. <laughs> yeah, please, please. Uh, the URL is clifton-metter.com. And sales, just give us a sense. You wouldn't need staff. You get sales weekly, monthly, daily. It goes up and down. It's yeah. really wild. Does it tie somebody from Instagram? Somebody saw this show and bought a book off, bought several books off the site. Just off of the... And I could tell they saw this show because their address was in Iowa. Yeah. I sent out an email on my mailing list with some links that might have gone through, just like in the last week uh, or a while. Yeah, it was about two weeks ago. It, it might have come from my email. Yeah. But, you know, it's hit, hit or miss. Yeah. And Vamp and Tramp, since they went virtual, sales have dropped with them. They have. Yeah. Oh, Because they, they're not going they're around. They're not traveling. They're not shopping it hard. They started, they started again, yeah. yeah. Just like last week. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I got some sales out of that trip. But, but they were hurting. They've been hurting since... In the COVID era, they they weren't getting the same. And Bill died uh, about three years ago. I see. So once Bill Bill was really a great interpreter of artist books, he would speak eloquently about work, and he was really amazing. Vicky's also wonderful, but Bill was an English teacher, brought a kind of different sensibility to talking about work. So Van Pintramp salesmen and they they come they in the past would come here and set up in room 12 and lay out all their wares and talk talk up all the different artists and really we would always you know buy a few things but all the people would come in and shop too so they really do the hard work of yeah that's hard to imagine they're going to do that at the same level they used to so uh vicky now has a person helping her lindsay mm-hmm. so maybe they'll they'll pick it back up that would be awesome I think so many people got exposed to books through them mm-hmm. that might never have seen the whole genre of artist books as a thing. And they represent a really wide range of activity, which is great. So you can see. Unlike printed matter, if you ever go to printed matter, that's like just really one kind of work, pretty much. Yeah. Well, I, I'd like to go back to um, this idea of the fine art book and the Trojan, Trojan horse. Trojan horse, and then and like like Walter Benjamin and the aura, and just talk about go a little bit more deeply into your thoughts on what makes it artful. Uh, so you want me to talk about Benjamin particularly? If 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 you have any thoughts on him, so uh, I was really obviously impressed with that. Yeah, when I read that in grad school. But it sounds like you're almost like anti. Uh, this is none of this work is very erratic. Yeah, it's in fact you know, the thing he said um, that really got me was, you know, that towards the end he writes, uh, fascism aestheticizes politics, uh-huh. right? Yes. And the reaction is to politicize aesthetics, <laughs> which is one of those maybe kind of too pat things to say. But uh, you know, most of my work is actually very political. Sure. And so that's part of my, my thinking is that as a human being, I'm really interested in the human condition and the, the way politics and the way we understand how we organize ourselves is so essential to whether we're happy or not. And there are lots of examples of terrible organization. There's one right there, Soviet Onion. Yeah. So um, I think about bad examples of self-organization and a good example of self-organization. And that's part of what's going on in a lot of the recent work, particularly. So control mechanism is about uh, societies of control and thinking about uh, how the gig economy and the cell phone has enslaved us. And that the idea of the gig economy where every worker is self-organizing creates the illusion of freedom without any of the actual freedom. You're actually a precarious worker. Oh, man. So much in so much worse state than you were. Yeah, and just look at the cabbies in New York, you know, versus for, exa- the, for yeah. example, that's yeah. perfect. Uber is a really exploitative yeah. thing, and in the own industry that I work in, in the academy, you know, when I started, it was maybe sixty or seventy percent full time professors, maybe eighty percent even, and now where I teach, now it's I think we're at around forty five percent full time employees, and the rest of people are paid by the class. And they get paid $3,500 to teach a three-credit class. So if you break down those hours, that's like 
they're making about $22 an hour. Yeah. So Domino's in my town now hires drivers for $23 an hour. <laughs> so you make more money driving pizza in my town than you would make teaching a class at the university. Yeah. So that's the great freedom of the precarious economy. Yeah. So a book like, um, like your early book that is a Trojan horse in the bookstore, potentially, is seen as a machine-made capitalist product, but then you open it and you have an experience that's weird, right? Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully weird, and if you don't just throw it down in uh, disgust or like, what, what is this, but actually spend some time with it, then you have that artful, aesthetic experience that kind of opens you up and it's a surprise, I guess. And you're in the moment and it goes beyond its means of production. That's maybe where we're getting back to Walter Benjamin and that there's a, a sense of through all of the complicated machinery of the world that we live in, you can still have some a real experience. Yeah. And the, each book, there's no original that the book is a reproduction of. Right. So that's the Benjamin idea is that the book is the only version of that thing. It doesn't exist in any other form. And, and it's made particularly to be a book. It's not made to be a collection of images of artwork. It's made to be a thing that is autonomous as an artistic experience, right? So the way I print it, so I, I, most of these books I print myself, you know, uh, I design typefaces, I take the photographs, I do the writing. It's really kind of a unitary production um, with the idea that it is something that isn't pointing to an artistic experience outside of itself. That's how it becomes uh, erratic, as you said. Yeah, so it's not erratic in any way because, I mean, it is a little bit now it's like in a gallery. Oh, right, right. So, I'm curious. So, how would you define an art book? Because, you know, I've had this discussion online. Well. And you think, I mean, you're pretty immersed in the field and you've seen a lot. And and can you define it from your experience? Yeah, this is, you're going to hate this. Uh, (laughs) It's anything an artist calls an artist book. (laughs) (laughs) So, Duchamp is kind of where I come down on this. So if somebody says this is an artist book, I at least have to go say, well, how is it like an artist book and how is it not like an artist book based on some criteria in my head that I can't really define very clearly. But I'll tell you the things I look for. A sense of heightened authorship. And by that I mean that the person who made it had a lot of influence over how it is. So that could mean working with a designer but being very heavily collaborative with a designer could be a collaboration with a printer, but the idea of a book that is not a text that's handed off to people who are disconnected from the the moment of creation. So if you think about trade publishing and how book designers work in trade publishing, not so much anymore, but in the past, uh, those books have very little of that sense of heightened authorship. Uh, The idea that Kadich printed his own books here kind of blew my mind because that's exactly the kind of thing I look for in work is like the idea that the person who's making the book has a lot of input into the final thing. So that's an artist. Yeah. Yeah. For, just, just for the purpose of the podcast, Catfish Press existed here in where the print shop is today. It is offset with though. Catfish uh, researched the material, wrote the text, uh, designed the plates, printed everything himself and then he or his students assembled the books and uh, created lar- fairly large editions that that I still sell here at the gallery uh, or through John Neal Bookseller if anyone wants one. I think I have some of his work right here in my yeah. pocket. <laughs> Those are his prayer, prayer cards. Yeah, all offset with though right here. He printed downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's a prototypical example of a, of a fine arts bookmaker. Yeah. Really. This kind of, this idea of this uh, experimental publishing, the, the new framework I have in my mind is experimental publishing. Mm-hmm. Where you're thinking about reaching, and there's a lot of interest among younger artists in, in publishing, but not so much in art of the book. Yeah. Uh, so reframing what we do as experimental publishing is maybe a way to find a different audience. Well, what do you think about POD, print-on-demand? I do a lot of that. Amazon? 
Uh, so like that book there, the guts are printed somewhere. That's a, I think it's Mad Cloud. I did a project where I made a book a week for a year, and those were all uh, print-on-demand Lulu books. Uh-huh. Uh, and I use print-on-demand stuff for different, like as an output engine sometimes. So at Lulu, you might have an inventory of books that are out there. Do they sell? Do you, as a, as opposed to your own shop, do you get print-on-demand? Yeah, I get royalty sales? checks from. Uh, so I mark up the books on Lulu, uh, one to five cents a piece. Okay. So I get checks for like a dollar twenty. <laughs> No, 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 no. We're just talking. There's no, there's no on time. Come on in. Thanks. thanks two, for after coming. two years of the pandemic, none of us have any sense of time anymore. <laughs> Where am I? Well, um, along those lines, let's talk about Texas. Some of these books are more text heavy than others, and in in the art book realm, text isn't the end all be all of a book, but what are your thoughts on text and how it ties to image in, in, in your books? Well, they obviously have different roles, different ones. Mm -hmm. um, I like to write, uh, and often I have writing ideas that accompany visual ideas. Sometimes I have a visual thing and I want to write about it, and sometimes I have a writing thing and I want to make a visual thing about it, and it, it balances back and forth that way. It doesn't, it's not very systematic. Okay. You uh, Do you ever... Um, collaborate with a writer? I have never collaborated with a writer. It's all text, generally speaking, is your text. Yeah. I did a series of poetry broadsides with April Sheridan when we were in Chicago. Oh, yeah. That was, and I've done some client-based design work, but that doesn't really count. Yeah. Uh, but uh, those poetry broadsides, I think, were the only time where I took somebody else's writing and tried to make something out of it. So do you use digital text, or do you use letterpress? Uh, it's all digital. I don't really have access to a letterpress right now. Um, and also, I have lots of thoughts about uh, the metal type world. So, one of the problems for me with letterpress typography is that it's frozen in 1960. So, the, nobody's been making metal typefaces with the exception of two people uh, this uh, Stern, you know, this Jim Rimmer typeface. And then Russell Moret is actually making a typeface that'll be available for monotype composition. So that's like people are speaking in voices that are frozen 50 years ago. There's been an incredible renaissance in typeface design starting in the 1990s. Some of the best type that's ever been made has been designed in the past 15 years. And your images are digital, so it makes sense to keep them in the same film. So you can make photopolymer plates from contemporary typefaces. Yeah. But then I get into this kind of weird mental thing about photopolymer plates and typography. So oh, tell, tell us more. So, so you're making a matrix, right? And you're going to print it in this kind of impression way. Now, it might be that you're doing that because that's the way you have to print. That's what you've got. Like if you've got a letterpress and that's what you can print. That's the tool. That's the tool. Then that's the way you're doing it. But it's really like offset lithography with a dent. The things that characterize letterpress type and are beautiful about it are particular to the metal surface and the spacing uh, imposed by the casting of the letters. Uh -huh. So monotype typefaces all are constrained to 16 widths. There's only 16 possible widths in a monotype typeface because of the, the layout of the card that goes in the caster. So all the letters have to fit in this grid so there's a look to monotype typeface spacing that's particular to it, and that's like a thing, it's a vernacular. And then foundry type, on the other hand, can be anywhere. So foundry type has superior spacing, in my opinion, to monotype cast because it's more particular to the design of the letter forms. But nobody's making them anymore. Uh, nobody's, I don't think anybody's designed uh, and made matrices for 
boundary typeface in a really long time. Probably Dante Giovanni Martyrstein's typeface, probably the last one. Uh -huh. And there are probably not people around who could do it anymore. Right? This is the lost art. Though I think, actually, the, the Imprimerie Nationale in Paris, I think they trained punch cutters there in order to make replacement sorts for some existing typefaces. And that would be a group of people who could do it. Yeah. But I don't think anybody's commissioned. That'd be a good, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. So there's these, uh, and we're talking about incredibly subtle differences in this stuff. At this point, it's like microscopic differences. So a photopolymer plate with type in it is really kind of like, it's not any different than any other digital printing process to me, except that it has a dent. Yeah. So I knew a guy, a, a commercial printer in San Francisco, who I admired greatly, uh -huh. who wanted to break into the $2 unit uh, business card market. And so he had a two-color offset press, so he's printing two-color business cards. And then he had a Heidelberg windmill in the corner, and he'd make a plate of the type and he'd take the offset printed sheets and hit it with this blind, hit it with this photopolymer plate of the type. So it looked like it was letterpress. <laughs> but it was so much crisper than any letterpress you ever saw. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I thought that kind of encapsulates my thinking about photopolymer plates, letterpress, and letterpress type. It's fetishistic beyond, the, beyond any reasonable need at this point. And just to be fair to everybody, there's nothing wrong with a fetish. <laughs> That's right. Right? That's there's really right. nothing wrong with that. It's not, it's not for you. Yeah, it's just not. Well, it, I mean, it just—I mean, embossment's nice. Yeah, it has a good way to do an embossment. But otherwise, yeah. what's the point? Is what you're saying? Uh, unless it's the way you have, you can print type. I mean, not everybody has wants to print digital books. There's a kind of soullessness to digital printing. It's kind of a bummer sometimes. If you have that machine and you have those inks, there's still something for lack of a better term, with an aura about that thing being printed that way. That's how they sell it anyway. Yeah, yeah. But, well, and then the rubber ink might last longer than, say, a laser jet or... Definitely will. Toner comes or, off. Or yeah. 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 So they're, they're those kind of reasons. I mean, it's a complicated question. I'm really interested in contemporary type design, so that's kind of where I come in at it. Uh -huh. And that stuff exists mostly in the digital format. Right. So how would you prefer your books to be printed? Offset? Different books, different ways. Yeah, I'd, like every, every different. I'd actually kind of want to silk screen a book now. Okay. Uh, this latest thing I'm working on now is dye sublimation printed, this fabric stuff. Yeah. So I'm making a bunch of books that are, and this is an early example of it, but um, the... It's got a really nice, it feels like it's starched. It is starched. Did you do I starched it. <laughs> See, I appreciate it. <laughs> I just liquid starch and I ironed it myself. And where did you say you got dye sublimated printing Spoon done? Spoonflower. Spoonflower in North Carolina. Carolina. That's pass online. That's just an online service, right? Yeah. You yeah. can pass that one around. Okay. It's kind um, of a proof. Tell us about your experience with Spoonflower. Were you able to get the colors that you wanted at the... So the color set they use is fluorescent. If uh, There's not very much UV in this light in here, but if you look at it... You, with light that has a little more ultraviolet in it, it's actually fluorescent. Sure. Uh, especially the yellow really pops. So I'm working now on a, another bigger project. This is sort of like a sketch toward it. The During the pandemic, the Rijksmuseum, I guess before that, they put their whole collection online at high resolution images, copyright free. Mm -hmm. So you can get any image out of there that they've digitized. And I started working with images from the golden age of Dutch culture to the 17th century, which was the height of the uh, Dutch East India Company. And I got really interested in this apparent contradiction. This is really, it's, I think it talks about our own current condition. So the Dutch Republic in the 17th century was a haven for free thinkers. They took religious dissidents, they had freedom of the press, they had uh, a kind of, they had a republic, it wasn't a monarchy anymore. They the world. And then they had this Dutch East India Company that traveled all over the world, enslaving people, <laughs> killing people, massacring people, uh, creating horrible trade monopolies. Uh, they they had the power to, to uh, hold their own armies. 
and it was the largest corporation I think that's ever existed, and it was the first corporation, yeah. the first publicly traded corporation. So you got this this thing, and it makes me think about our own country. So in some respects, the Dutch Republic had all this liberality to it. Yeah. But in other aspects, the Dutch Republic was kind of a nightmare. What we call that late high capitalism? That was early high capitalism. Early high capitalism. Late high, late high capitalism. Yeah. So I've been looking at these images of this incredible material wealth reflected in the Rijksmuseum, and just the material history that's available online there of all this incredible Dutch silversmithing, uh, the paintings, Dutch still lives to me are so emblematic of this sudden wealth in a country with all this, they, they made paintings to display what they owned. Tulips, And the tulip craze, yeah. I mean, that's so ephemeral, and they were so valuable. <laughs> so that's the stuff I'm working on right now. There's a big fabric book that if you come to Codex, you see that I make. It's, uh, so do you think that traditionally fabric books have been kind of like children's books? Yeah. And is there any example of them being adult books? Uh, yeah. The actually, I started thinking about this. I saw the the was it the Louis, Louise Bourgeois show at the MoMA. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. oh, yeah. She did a bunch of fabric books. Yeah, she pieced together her family yeah. clothes. Right. And those yeah. those are Very fabulous. Personal. They're just fabulous things, and most of them are kind of small. And I started thinking about textiles. And so for the Dutch East India thing, I was actually thinking of that as sailcloth. I was thinking of... What, what fabric is that? It's a cotton twill. Mm-hmm. It's like a mid, mid-weight cotton twill. It's not really sailcloth. And I was thinking starts, about the sail. It starts with a nice touch because it, it has just a firmness flop, that... It flopped around too much without the starch. Yeah. <laughs> Questions for Cliff on... Uh, the machine-made book, the handmade book. I have more questions, but I want to get people involved. Late high capitalism. Come on, you guys that have questions. So I have one more question. Sure. Because you're the only person that I know. <laughs> Local uh, book environment. You know, this thing is a book object. Is they, you know, they tear pages of a book and they make it into sculpture. Yeah. Uh, do you consider that a book? Uh, that so I take that case by case. So Buzz Spectre's work like that, I think is, those are books. Those are books? Those are definitely books. And what's his name? Buzz Spectre. He's sort of in your realm of... Uh, how, how do you spell that last name? S-P-E-C-T-O-R. O-R, yeah. Spectre? Yeah. Yeah, Buzz Spectre. He does a lot of sculptures by stacking up books. So he uses the book. A lot of his work sort of bounces off the idea of the book. Yeah. He taught at Cornell. I don't know if he's still there. He was the dean at uh, Wash U for a while. Wash U, that's right. So you see what happened. I was kind of part of this loose book group uh, Instagram. And I kind of make books in response to them. And and so I posted some definition of book just to get them all thinking. And boom, that was the whoa. That was a big explosion. <laughs> that was a, there was a lot of controversy about it in the 80s and 90s. And I, I got kind of worn out by it, like whether where you put the apostrophe. <laughs> <laughs> so it's artist, plural, apostrophe, <laughs> books, plural. And I suppose the thing that matters is when you're applying to a show and you have to find a niche. I was hoping that the, that kind of categorization of artwork would break down more and people would just look at work and think, is this interesting or not? Yeah. Or the catalogers and the art person. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. About it. Otherwise, it's just a power dynamic. But you're right, that's the, the artistic attitude. I mean, I'm going to do whatever I want because I am free. <laughs> You know, I'm not going to be constrained by anybody. Yeah. Like, did you get the teacher's job? Anybody else? I love the idea of passing books around. Are there any other books in the show you'd like to point out and talk about because while we're here? Well, I experienced it's one thing, and then you start talking about it, and yeah. it's 
just brings it to life. Yeah. Like. Well, let's talk about Studio of Exhaustion because you got two bodies of work in here. You have the, the body of work that Studio of Exhaustion, and you have the other. The, the older work, yeah. yeah. So I, the Studio of Exhaustion idea came. I was traveling in China, and inside the Forbidden City, um, there's a little tiny building in the upper northeastern corner. It's called the Studio of Exhaustion for Diligent Service. <laughs> and I had been, I became an administrator, academic administrator. Uh, that was really fun. And I was thinking about not doing that anymore. So I, and I was about to start building a studio. So I realized that, that was what my studio needed to be called. <laughs> it was designed for one of the uh, Qing emperors who never really got to use it. <laughs> he built it, and it was, it's not a very grand building, it's pretty small. He built it to retire, but he was never able to retire. So he never got to use it. It got sealed up in the 18th century, never reopened until the 20th century. So it's a perfectly preserved little moment of Qing interior design. And it was a UNESCO project. They restored it. And it's just gorgeous. It's a very modest little building. And it has all these kind of craft trades in it. So in so many ways, I was thinking about what I do is actually kind of a craft. So the idea of a little building for me as I stepped away from administrative work to do my work in sort of felt harmonic. So I started doing a new kind of, a new kind of work, really. And it started with the 100 uh, Excellent Flowers. It was really the first one. Would you like to talk about that one? I love it. Love that book. Sure. Because I know two people who are <laughs> can leave the cover part behind. That's really just, that's just for toting. So I think of that blue thing is not really part of the book exactly. It's a wrapper. It just, it's just because it's so floppy otherwise. Pence and I own this book and I just wanted to give a pence that's really beautiful and so affordable. I bought it online. And what's your commission? She make a deal. She make a deal with you. So I was I was photographing. Yeah. I was just sort of idly photographing flowers one spring, uh, and I had the urge to start making books again as I was winding down as chair of this big department, and so I started making. Uh, I'd make color separations of the photograph, and then I'd make collages for each one of the color separations. So it's not really, I don't know if you can see this, but each color is actually a bunch of crazy collage elements. And sometimes the dots are big and sometimes the dots are not big. You change the system. You, you, you break the half-toning system for expressionistic effect. Exactly. That was very articulate. <laughs> and, and he calls, he, Chris, he calls the different layers of the different scales, the dots, collages. Collages, yeah. Because it's like a collage. If you looked at like just the cyan printer in the black and white, it just looks like a collage because it's different areas cut up and glued together. And then I, uh, I was also photographing junk food a lot. <laughs> in a, like there's a market where the students go and buy their horrible junk food. And how did that get merged in with the flowers? Well, what are flowers? Flowers are a kind of persuasion for uh, fertilizers, okay. right? Yeah. <laughs> pollinators and I looked at junk food as some kind of very similar thing. Super super tasty. Yeah, it's meal. like it's supposed well, to attract right colors to attract you. Yeah. So I wrote a I took uh I'm That's very interested in Mao uh, because you know Mao is one of the great dictators of the twentieth century. And he did a thing in the ninth late fifties, uh a speech gave a speech on the correct handling of contradictions among the people. And he quoted a poem in this speech. He said, let a hundred flowers bloom. Let a hundred schools of thought contend. Uh, this was followed very shortly by the anti-rightist movement where anybody who had criticized the government was rounded up and uh, a lot of them were killed. They were sent to labor camps. And nobody knows for sure, but it seems likely that he just did this as a way to flush out any opposition to the Communist Party at the time. So famously, a uh, method of faking person. faking freedom of intellectual thought in order to actually crack down on dissidents. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and daily lies. 
So then I, I rewrote part of his speech for part of this. Um, Let a hundred brands blossom. <laughs> Let a hundred corporations contend. Often profits and market share are regarded not as deserved rewards, but as deleterious poisons. What's wrong with huge profits? How could wealth ever be evil? Why do a few snacks matter? How could sugary breakfast cereal ever be bad? Why do a few lies matter? This is when we were getting lied to a lot by our yeah. government. Who cares about lying? Fill the stores with lies. Let the people stuff themselves with fragrant falsehoods. Let a hundred lies blossom. Let truth become a poison. Fill the aisles with bags of pernicious slop. Cram our heads with lies and false persuasions. Pretend the garbage is food. Pretend that lies are truth. Feed the people disgusting swill and call it a feast until no one can tell the difference between poison and antidote. So this was kind of the first one in this series. And I, I took a, because I was learning how to run this press, I didn't want to print on the backs of the pages because if you look, you can see there's a fair amount of set off. So I picked a book structure that allows you to just print on one side of the piece of paper. And I had to find paper that was sufficiently flexible to make this structure work. One of the things I teach book structures to, and a lot of students try to make this structure work with very stiff paper, uh -huh. and it really doesn't like to be stiff paper. It needs to be very floppy. This is even right at the edge of being too stiff. So what sort of paper is that? It's a 100% recycled eco uh, paper made by Nina. So uh, we have a green print shop. So we do everything we do has got to be certified. Uh, we have to have demonstrate custody of the fibers in the paper, and we use uh, you know recyclable stuff and uh, special soy inks. So these are all fluorescent inks too. So if you if there's UV, you do soy inks on the offset with them. Yeah. Wow. This book has a good smell if you have your mask off. That's really interesting. I, I had no idea you could even do that offset. Well, it's a still a solvent-based ink. It's not water-based. The okay. inks Joseph and I were using yesterday were awesome. I mean, they just clean up with water. Yeah. So you haven't used those before? The, the I've yeah. used some water-based inks, but they didn't work very well. Well, they like kind of never dry. They never dry. Cool. Well, usually doesn't dry. Yeah. I oh, used some pieces that took forever to dry. I mean, a couple of years later, I checked it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you probably don't want to have a Rizzo here. No. That is such a fad everywhere in the art world. So this is a. I, I mean, it. We have a couple of Rizos at school, and I. This is a Rizzo printed book, and you have to handle it carefully because I printed this two years ago. It might dry in my lifetime. <laughs> but it's. Uh, this the book. The Rizzo inks don't want to dry they, in, if they're layered up. Right, they can't layer them, and you need to use really absorbent paper. But this book is uh, photographed a bunch of pictures of uh, settlers in a museum in Tucson, and then hidden inside. So these are French folded pages. So hidden inside, there's another narrative about land use in Arizona. Uh, so I was interested in these kind of bad duotones. And how did you find it? It just—it's just a pamphlet sketch. But it has a little—it has some secrets under these flaps. Uh, that we found texts about the rush. So I thought of these as in ghosts inhabiting Arizona. But this, this idea of Rizzo, the ink that the Rizzo prints with is a little bit of rice bran oil, water, and pigment. So it's super ecologically good. So that part of it's great. It's an amazing teaching tool. Yeah. Uh, you, you can teach a student how to use it in about five minutes. And they understand printing in a really different way because it's only spot color. Yeah. And it's two colors you get? The fancy ones are two colors, but we have a one color and a two color. And you have to buy a separate drum for each color. And they make all these funny spot colors that are not PMS colors. <laughs> so it's cool that way. And the first one I did is that other book behind you, Wild Trotting. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's a little outside of our price point unless it's gotten a lot cheaper. No one really makes them cheap, right? I mean, no, I think we bought one for about 16 grand. Yeah, it's outside of our price point. Yeah. Is that printed fabric or? Yeah, this, is, this book cloth is printed digitally. Uh, 
But the inside was the first visa thing I did. Did you print on any book cloth or you have to use special book cloth? Um, this is actually just cotton cloth. But I printed it And then I have a, another book, I didn't, it's not in the show, that's uh, printed on, I think it's a buckram. One of those UV inkjet printers. You know what I'm talking about? It's see the there's a head. The inkjet has a UV light on it, and the inks polymerize with ultraviolet light, so it dries instantly. And you can print on almost anything with it. I did a print on felt one time with it. <laughs> Any other questions? Thoughts? It's fun to hand books around. Yeah. <laughs> we can spend a lot of time. I just want to get I just want to get as many of your thoughts into the recording as possible. So I was just yeah. I think this is beautiful, but it's kind of big to hold. Yeah. That one's you need Vanna White. <laughs> That's the craziest printing experiment, I think, in here. So I'm gonna to try to describe how I did that and then you'll forgive me if I'm not very articulate about it. The idea was I wanted. I was thinking about how miraculous icons are formed. It's made yeah. with uh, the contact of cloth. Uh, for example, the veil of Veronica, right? So Veronica holds a piece of cloth to Jesus' face, and his face appears on the piece of cloth. And I was thinking about photography and how that seems to make an image without the intervention of human hands as well. And I was particularly thinking about daguerreotypes because they look like little mirrors. So this book is kind of a weird reflection on the history of cotton production and photography and the introduction of cheap mirrors. So I wanted to make the book in a way, find a material metaphor that echoed those ideas. So I designed pages in a page layout software. And then I made color separations from that. And I printed each color separation on thin cotton cloth. I took the thin cotton cloth and put it in contact with an offset lithographic plate and exposed light through the fabric onto the plate so that the weave of the cloth created the halftone dot pattern in the images. <laughs> and then we printed it one color at a time on an offset press. So it's a literal shadow of a piece of cloth. And the kind of cool part so there's a synthetic portraits in the back of it. So these are essentially three different so I took the cyan from one portrait and did it from another portrait. Actually, what color did I do? I made the cyan printer from one, this from one, and the greenish color from another. And I registered, the only thing that registered really was their eyes. Scratches and everything I've done with But if you look at it closely, you can see that it's screened with fabric. Was that was that floral fabric texture a part of the daguerreotype too, or is that is that something I added? Yeah. You added it because one of the other sub themes is the production cotton cloth. <laughs> oh, those two themes together. How did cotton cloth in India get part of? Uh, part of cotton, the history of cotton. Oh, and the plates were made out of cotton. So I see. So yeah, were so the daguerreotypes in India were they that size or were they a lot smaller? They're, they're tiny. So the, the Library of Congress has them all online, copyright free, at fairly high resolution. So I just blew them up. So I just blew them up. Okay. Yeah, the colors are beautiful. They're really rich. So that. That book has no words in it, so I had all these complicated ideas in my head. So I made another book that's actually the words that would have gone in that book. Well, to be honest with you all, if I was terrible, we do it this way. <laughs> and even me, depraved typographer that I am, couldn't stand it. So <laughs> I made another book. <laughs> you put the type on the side. Of the people are related, that these works together. 
They're not related. Okay. The, the kind of idea in my head was that Matthew Brady had these public salons of Puritan, and he put, uh, these are all photographs of notable, so-called notable people at the time. And the idea was that um, looking at the face of a notable person was uplifting to people. <laughs> so that was the, the kind of, that was the language of The idea was people would go to Brady's salon and look at these notable people's faces, and just looking at them would be uplifting to be somehow a better person for gazing at Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> so there are actually these are chunks of the pages there printed again on a green paper so it's two colors rather than three colors on a green paper. And this one there's like a small copy of that one. So if you look at this one it has a diagram cover. You know, actually, I think what Gail just brought up there with Instagram and Kim Kardashian is interesting. Like, you see yourself in a niche in the bookmaking world that separates yourself from some who you suspected are stuck in a 60s mindset or the, the, the craft movement in bookmaking. You see yourself separately from that, but could you see yourself ever taking this leap into only digital or a, a truly digital experience with your books? So that's interesting. So in the early 90s, I was teaching graphic design and I wound up being the person teaching the interactive media stuff. Uh -huh. So Macromind Director, HyperCard, all that stuff I used to teach. And I started working that way. I started making projects. Yeah. And I thought that was what was going to happen. I was going to make digital art. You're going to go that, you just go all the way. Because it seems like you have the personality where you just keep seeing this. You find the art in the technology. So I, when, uh, very shortly thereafter, I realized that that was painting with water. Oh. Because that work, none of the work I did in that period is available in any way now. You can't see it. Right. There's no way to receive it. So they used to talk about, the Library of Congress talked about the digital dark age. Yeah. That there's a huge volume of stuff that's not going to be accessible just five years from now. Yeah. Because they're not migrating the platforms forward. So you think about a hypercard stack. Yeah. How could you see that? Yeah. Macromedia oh, director, how could you see any of that stuff? Flash has been deprecated. Yeah, yeah. And in just the historical study of the whole group, yeah. Beyond the objects themselves, understanding what artists do, I mean, there's no letters, people don't write letters, or the emails disappear, all of it's gone. No one can get access to it once the person dies, you know, it's right. completely... Right, it disappears. And, and that we couldn't have anticipated that at the time when the technology was new, right? So, and I just didn't want to make work that wouldn't persist after me. I'm incredibly narcissistic and vain, and I recognize all that. But you know, this idea, the, I've never understood performance art for very similar reasons. <laughs> but there's just something about holding a book. I mean, I really liked the books. Even before I started making books, I admitted that I had two weaknesses. And um, and you know they're a source of information and inspiration. But what I really like about artist books is a whole different experience. Yeah. And it can find people in ways that nothing else can. You know, a hundred years from now, you might wander across one of these. Somebody will wander across one of these books in some place, and they'll say, "Wow, this is weird." But they'll still that, speak to them. Hopefully. I can't guarantee that. But uh, that's an it's interesting idea to me is that you, it's like a message in a bottle for the future. Because pictures, we all respond to a picture, they say it's a thousand words, but we're the ones that put the words to them. And so you are directing them with words, so they'll respond to it from their viewpoint in the future. It'll be received differently, yeah. yeah. I, I related as a painter growing up in Galesburg, I, my primary experience of painting was through books. Yeah, me too. Right? So yeah. you, you receive them as printed images first. And, and I came into art through comic books, which again, printed matter. That was my first 
means of drawing or thinking about drawing is printed matter there too. So I, I, I've often wondered about that uh, limited bandwidth on the image that if I'd been seeing them, if I'd been around paintings, if I'd seen them in museums more, how that would have, maybe I'd come to it earlier, I had a very different sensibility for it. I struggled for many years to translate my thoughts and feelings into the paint because it was too too viscous and uh, all over the place with palette versus the limitations of the printed material first. So I, I can kind of understand the the democratic potential, but also the, the lack of translation or the, the loss in translation from that. Well, that's because you're thinking of it as a translation, and I was interested in not translating anything. You're not translating. It's yeah. just the thing itself. Right. So I had a really vivid experience with exactly what you're talking about. So I grew up really interested in art and uh, Demoiselle's Devignon, right? Picasso's painting. Really interested in that painting for some reason. And I saw it as a 14 year old. I got to go to New York for the first time. And there's this part that's green in the upper right hand corner. And, uh, I've never seen it. and the process color reproductions I've seen of it, you can't <laughs> see that it's a green because greens are really tough and seem like hay. It's uh -huh. kind of dirty. Uh -huh. And it was like, oh. <laughs> so oh, I've been lied to again. Completely different thing. Yeah. yeah. At the Art Institute in Chicago, is that one? Is it Pizarro's painting of Sunday afternoon by the river? Oh, Surat, Surat, Surat. Yeah. Big. I mean, I turned the corner and there it is, and I just stopped dead in my tracks because I recognized it. Yeah, we're good. Anybody? Any more questions for Cliff before we call the day? Well, thank you so much, Cliff. Thanks for having me, y'all. Thank you.
thought. Really fascinating to hear all about this. And uh, this shows up for a few more weeks, but otherwise, Clifton Metter.com <laughs> or Vamp and Tramp. Or Vamp and Tramp. All these books are available, most of them. And come to Kodaks if you want. Where is that? Uh, San Francisco in April. There'll be a lot of people. 200 St. Ambrose hopes you've enjoyed this program. All rights reserved 2022.